Hello. Today, I was just going to like not even jump through an introduction. I was like, oh, so today I want to talk about dealing with disappointment. And so I was walking up on the stage, and the video's not playing. I'm like, it's kind of disappointing. <laughs> and then uh, you, you didn't see me, but I was ninja-fying my cables back here because I was all twisted up in the game. And I was like, this is also disappointing. I was like, I think I am the illustration and the opening introduction. I'm disappointed right now. <laughs> The, um, I don't know about you, but it, last week with this idea of courage, uh, maybe you've kind of started stepping into that. Um, we're in the midst of this series called How to Beat the Odds. And uh, last week, I introduced this uh, inner motivation. And um, this inner motivation that's essential if we're going to beat the odds, which is courage. And uh, it was a little bit of an abstract thought. It was a little bit of an abstract uh, thing to process through. Um, but the essence was that if we want to begin to beat the odds that we have to try tr trust and tell more than we're, what we're comfortable with. And I think that's a really helpful handle because oftentimes it's not the external things that hinder us from being able to live a life with better decisions and fewer regrets. It's the internal war, isn't it? It's not the external circumstances. It's what we do in response to those external circumstances on the inside. And uh, what I wanted to do uh, with last week and then this week um, is I want to shift the gears and, and say, okay, let's talk about not just how to have better communication skills or how to be more aware of what's going on in our past and how it influences our present, but I want us to look inside and say, okay, what are the things in me that are essential, that are, are needed to live a life with better decisions and fewer regrets, to beat the odds, to have a marriage that looks different than the marriage you came from, to have a relationship with your kids that looks different than the relationship that you had with your parents, or to be in a different financial situation and circumstance than perhaps what you um, grew up with or are currently in the midst of right now. And that in all of this positive kind of directional, like, let's move forward, reality is, is that sometimes disappointments happen. Sometimes you hit a wall. And uh, I've experienced this in no matter what era or arena, right? Um, Currently, I want to get a little bit healthier. I've gained some weight. So I've noticed that when I get off the treadmill, there's this moment I feel good. But then the next day, I feel like someone silently assaulted me. Right? I, I get out of the bed, and I'm like, I didn't know that part could hurt. Right? And then, then you're wondering, how did a treadmill cause that part to be sore? Because you didn't even use that part. Right? That the reality is, is no matter what it is that we step into, when we want to see something different in our life, ultimately, always, there's some point where we face disappointment, where we face challenge. And what do we do in those moments? And, and I say that because for many of us, when we hit that wall and we've just gotten started and we've mustered up all the courage that we could muster up, it can almost, it can almost kill us in the process. It almost just squashes us and we just say, you know what, I told you. This is, I knew this was going to happen. And so I want to talk about that voice that's behind that choice for us to quit sometimes. That voice that oftentimes is whispering in our ear that tells us we should just give up. That doubt, that disappointment that tells us we should just check out. And, and in the midst of me wanting to talk about this today, I do need to give a disclaimer. I will stir up some things that I can't answer inside of you. If I'm going to talk about disappointment, if I'm going to talk about doubt, if I'm going to talk about that moment where we 
feel a tendency and a pull to become disillusioned. The reality is, is that um, I can't deal with all of those things. And so here's what I'm going to do the course of this month. Today, I'm going to deal with the surface level, this kind of initial response of what I'm talking about. And then at the end of the month, I'm going to come back and I'm going to go deep in this idea of what happens when life doesn't turn out the way you want it to. What happens when you get that phone call or you get that slip or you're looking at a child who says words that you never imagined you'd hear? Or when tragedy happens, like that significant, substantial kind of disappointment, I can't do justice to it today. And I just want you to be aware of that because I may stir some questions in you that I do not answer today. And out of just fairness, I would say hold on to those questions. Wrestle a little bit longer and at the end of the month, I'll come back and I'll press into it. And I'll talk about how do we deal with those moments when it's not just disappointment, disillusion, or doubt that we're struggling with. It's disaster that we find ourselves in. And um, I just wanted to make sure, because I'm sensitive to We all have different backstories. And I want to talk about the present, but I recognize for some of us there's some significant things that need to be addressed. And that's why I'm going to break this into two messages. So that's my disclaimer. What I want to do today, though, is actually kind of begin this conversation. And by looking at someone that is... Uh, I think this central figure in the New Testament that many of us probably haven't read a lot about, or maybe if you're new to church, perhaps you've never even really heard of, um, it's this really critical moment in his life. Um, he's the cousin of Jesus. He's a guy named John who has uh, kind of had the responsibility of preparing people for what Jesus would say. And John finds himself in the midst of successful ministry. Thousands of people are traveling um, hundreds of miles, dozens of miles. They're leaving the city to come out in the middle of nowhere in the desert to hear him speak, and their lives are being changed, and impact is happening, right? And you've got this whole, it says that all the world was coming to John. And in the midst of John being this guy who stands up for what's right, and he speaks about what's right, he ends up making a statement and criticizing the king because the king steals his brother's wife. It's kind of like Games of Thrones kind of stuff, right? He, like, he literally takes his brother's wife, and she becomes his. And John says, this isn't okay, this isn't right. And he makes a stand, and what happens is John gets arrested for it. He gets thrown in prison. And prison today is very cush compared to prison back then. And so here's John in this dark, damp place, with probably only about a foot of headroom above his head. There is no natural light flowing in. There is no amenities. It's chains. It's stone. It's uncomfortable. It's a dark, depressing place. And in Matthew 11, we get introduced to this moment in John's life with what John's struggling with. John, who's been a hero. John, who has been a proclaimer. John, who's been the man that all the world has come to see is now the man who is in prison that the world has forgotten about. And while his stock has been plummeting, while his life has been downward spiraling, Jesus, his stock is starting to soar. This point is about a year into Jesus' ministry, and at this point, he's becoming popular, so popular that he now is has followers, and he's sending these followers out because he has more speaking engagements than he can fulfill. He has more opportunities than he himself can handle. So he's literally sending out people into the streets. His stock is soaring. 
while John's is sinking. And in Matthew 11, this, the first book in the, the New Testament, this first biography that we have on the life of Jesus, written by someone who was a disciple and a follower of Jesus, we see this moment play out. And as Jason referenced earlier, if you have the Encounter Church app, if you've downloaded it, in the message notes, you can actually go ahead and find these verses preloaded for you. And if not, they'll be on the screens behind me. But in Matthew 11, it says, After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, these followers that he began, um, he went on there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, his cousin, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? I love the honesty of the Bible. Here's John, the hero of faith. And what does he do? He's sitting in prison, almost 100 miles from where Jesus currently is in Galilee. So the prison that he's in is about 100 miles south of Jesus. So he's way outside of the circle conversation. He's way outside of like the gossip and the rumors of what Jesus is doing and saying. He's isolated down south. And he's sitting in a prison and he recognizes this is probably the end. Whether the end is today, next week, or next month, he's not sure, but he knows this is the end. And he's starting to struggle with doubt and disappointment. It's one of these subtle reasons that I believe the Bible is true, even when I don't always understand all of it. Because this is one of those moments where if I was going to craft a book and create a faith, I don't know if I would make one of the central figures in the beginning of the central figure of the New Testament be a man who struggles with doubt about who Jesus is. It's probably not the best ploy or play to, to build a fellowship. But this is real. This is what John's struggling with. He's not sure. And what does he do? He sends some of his followers, some of his students, to travel the days and days journey, 100 miles, to see Jesus. I mean, this is not a, this is not a text message, hey, Jesus, just need to check in and see how things are going. This is John in prison. And here's what's important to understand. So in this day and age, there, we have... In the midst of our prison system, there is a welfare support system, right? Prisoners are fed. They're taken care of. They have their needs met. They may not be able to get out of prison, but all the things that they need for life is there in prison with them. This is not how the Romans did prison. You were in prison, and they didn't care whether or not you lived or died. Your life source, what sustained you, was the support of your friends and family. They were your welfare system. They brought the food. They came by to talk with you. They were the ones who brought the candles and the reading material. They supported you, sustained you in the midst of this struggle. And what does John do? John's doubt is so strong. It's so pervasive that he willingly sends his welfare support system away because the pain of his doubt was stronger than his hunger and his concern about his personal safety and companionship. This gives you a little bit of an insight of where John is. John is struggling with doubt. The reality is, is that doubt is not some obscure religious thing. Doubt is a human thing. We've all been in places of doubt before, not just about faith, but about relationships and whether this marriage is going to last 
doubts about the choices we make and the jobs that we take. We all struggle with doubt. And here's kind of the simplified definition of doubt and disappointment, kind of how all this plays out, just if I can kind of present this to you. That doubt and disappointment arises when our expectations do not meet what our experiences reveal to us. That when our expectations and our experiences do not line up, what happens in that gap is, is what we would describe as disappointment and doubt. So we have these expectations, we have these anticipations of what this relationship's going to look like, what this job's going to look like, what, what my future's going to look like, what my family's going to look like, and then we have our experience. And when there's that gap, the bigger the gap, the wider the gap, the stronger the doubt, and the disappointment. And this is where John is. John is struggling. He had some expectations. He had some ideas of what would, what would happen, and they're not playing out because now he's sitting in prison. And so he sends Jesus this question, are you the guy or is there someone else? Because my life has been built around this belief that there is going to be this special someone, this savior, this rescuer, this redeemer, this significant figure in history that stands out. And I'm not sure if you're that guy anymore. So are you? Or is there someone else, is his question. And then Jesus responds, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. And blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. That's his response to John. And it's in his response that on the surface for us as 21st century readers, it's, it's not glaringly obvious what Jesus does to him. But for John, it would have been profoundly clear what Jesus was saying to him. See, what Jesus does in this moment is Jesus quotes a passage from Isaiah, this ancient text, this scroll that... John himself had pulled his, his vision of what God was going to do in his life and through his life out of. So Isaiah 61, this profound passage about what the Messiah, this promised one of God, was going to look like. So what does Jesus do? Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 back to John. John's question is, are you that guy? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Holy One? And Jesus' response is really telling. So here's what I want to do to help you, because um, you have to remember is John's a theologian. He's an incredibly deep thinker. He is, outside of Jesus, he's the most influential religious leader in his day. Okay, Significantly brilliant communicator, thinker, theologian. And what does he do? He's struggling because he understa his understanding of this passage is different than what his experience is. And so Jesus responds to him, Seeking to clarify. And here's what's beautiful about doubt and disappointment. Is that most of us think doubt and disappointment are bad things. We tend to want to avoid them. We want to kind of, if it happens to us, we think somehow there's a deficiency in us. But this is what Jesus does. Jesus recognizes that doubt does not have to destroy you. Doesn't have to destroy your relationship. It does not have to destroy your faith. It can deepen it can deepen your understanding of it. It can bring clarity. And this is what Jesus tries to do. He desires to take John's doubt and use it to deepen his faith and to bring him greater clarity. 
And so what does he do? He uses this passage. So for the Jewish people, this idea of the promised one from Isaiah really was, the, the best way to say it was, it was this grand idea, and they called it the day of the Lord. That was what the ancient Jewish people thought about this moment, the day of the Lord. And you don't have to understand all the nuances of the day of the Lord. You just need to know that John's view of the day of the Lord was different than what Jesus was responding him to. And the ancient understanding of the Jewish people, God would come, and not only would he fix the brokenness in me, he would fix the brokenness in the world too. And it would happen all at one time. He would destroy the evil, wicked Roman Empire that was crushing the Jewish people, and he would break the things that had chains on them too. And so in their mind, when the Messiah came, the Jewish people would be liberated as a nation. And so let me help you kind of physically feel and see what Jesus does. So think of a mountain range, a beautiful picture, a kind of ah, of some type of the, maybe the most beautiful mountain range you've ever seen. And in the midst of that mountain range, the Jewish people would have understood that mountain range as the day of the Lord. When, when they talked about the day of the Lord, when they visualized it, they would have seen this like, wow, this beautiful landscape. And they're like, here's the day of the Lord. That peak is when he crushes the Roman Empire. And that peak is when he crushes the chains inside of me. And that peak is when he rolls out justice and mercy and love and hope and all those things come. And they're just pointing to all those mountain peaks. And Isaiah 61 says, that he's going to proclaim the freedom for the captives. He's going to release the prisoners. He's going to, the lame will walk, the, the dead will rise, the deaf will hear, the blind will see, and it all will happen. That's what they think about when they think about the day of the Lord. But the problem is, is it's wrong. What Jesus does for John is he clarifies his misunderstanding. He says, John, you have expectations about what the Messiah looks like. And instead of speaking to John's experiences, he seeks to clarify John's expectations. So let me help you. You have 3D glasses on your seat. The red should be on your left side. The blue should be on your right. You may have to get a little cross-sided to see what I want to show you. But this will be what John experienced internally, mentally, in the shift that Jesus gives him here. So you can go ahead and put your glasses on. I will not take a picture of you, although I want to. And, and this is what Jesus does. Jesus says, I know in your mind the day of the Lord, this Jewish idea of what I'm going to do is, is flat and all the peaks are side by side. You know, the day of the Lord, the joy, the peace, the, the lame will walk, the prisoner set free, Rome destroyed. Like I know in your mind it's, it's flat, but in reality, there's depth to it. That there's some peaks in this picture, if your eyes are seeing it, there are some peaks that are closer than the other. This is not a flat mountain range where you can walk from the left to the right without any, any kind of drops or distance. In reality, there's some significant distance between the two. That the first, the, this big peak on your left, this big peak on the right, and then the distant ones out back. This is what Jesus was trying to tell John that day. He's like, look, what I've come to do is not break the chains that the Roman Empire has on you. I've come to break the chains of the brokenness inside of you. 
that part of you that seems to not be able to overcome your struggles, that part of you that always seems to drift into those places where you say, why did I say that again? Why did I do that again? How did I end up here again? And he says, that's what I've come to break. The distant mountain chain, that's, that's a separate time when I come back and I fix the world and I make it right. You can take the glasses off. Okay. I realized if I didn't say that, you're going to be having this psychedelic effect with my red and blue. Like, Chris is psychedelic. Okay, you can keep the glasses. They're yours. Just um, don't look at me with them. Okay, and, and so, so does that help you kind of understand what John was, John was experiencing? Was he had this expectation of what God was going to do in his life? And Jesus' response is, no, John, that's not, what, that's not what's true. There's depth to it. I want you to... And so John gets from Jesus clarity for his confusion. Here's the, here's the reality. Isaiah 61, if you read one more verse, if you keep going past three into four, the, the words, the sentence, to proclaim freedom for the captives and to release from prisoners. To release from prison the prisoners. Jesus doesn't quote that verse to John. Because Jesus is speaking to John's expectations, not his experience. He's like, look, John, where you are right now in your circumstances, I'm not changing that. But I do want to change your perspective in the midst of your circumstances. That we forget that oftentimes when we find ourselves in doubt and places of disappointment, that it is not one thing. There are multiple realities. There is our circumstances, and then there is our perspective in the midst of our circumstances. And it's not the same thing. It wasn't the same thing for John. And it wasn't the same thing for Sheryl Sandberg, who is an incredibly influential woman in Silicon Valley. She is one of the most powerful women in Silicon Valley. She has worked at Google, and she's currently one of the chief operating officers at Facebook. And a couple years ago, on her husband's 50th anniversary, and a resort that I will never go to that is about $13,000 a night in Mexico, she and her husband, along with a small group of friends, are there celebrating his 50th birthday. And it's early in the day, and he looks at her, and he says, I'm going to go exercise in the gym, and we'll meet back up for dinner. And at dinner time, 6 p.m., he's still not there. 6.30, he's still not there. And she starts to get nervous. And lo and behold, they find him in the gym. So, and he's on the ground, and he's dead. Here's this 50-year-old man with two small kids who went to the gym to exercise, and he dies. And her world falls apart. She has to fly back home with his body and tell her two children that their father is gone. And she, she wrote an incredibly brilliant book that I would encourage you to read called Option B, where she walks through, along with Adam Grant, her journey of grieving and dealing with this massive disappointment. But there was a moment that was a turning point for her um, that she talks about in the book and that I've seen her talk about in an interview at a leadership conference. She talks about the moment when she's talking with her friend, Adam Grant, and he says the words to her, well, you know, it could have been worse. She's like, what are you talking about? 
I'm 46 years old, and I'm a widow with two small kids. How could this have been worse? And he says, well, this surprise heart attack that no one saw coming, it could have happened while he was driving your kids to school on the interstate. And she just... Because in her mind, there was no way this thing could have ended worse. And she's like, oh my goodness, I, here I am. And she says that I, I went from being overwhelmed with grief as a widow to gratitude that I still had my children. Her circumstances had not changed, but her perspective had. And this is what Jesus was doing for John. He was shifting his perspective. He was changing the way he saw the world. And it's because Jesus understood something that was critical. If we're not careful, if we're not intentional about this, then there can be some really dangerous impacts that come from it. But there's another part of Cheryl's story that's also present in John's story that I think is also helpful. It's not just that there was a shift and a change in perspective. It was also that John and Cheryl both had community that offered that perspective. They weren't alone. They weren't by themselves. And when we walk through doubt and disappointment, it's important to remember that we're not made to walk it alone. Because disappointment and doubt and pain, those prison spaces and places can give us tunnel vision. And I would encourage you, if maybe in the midst of trying to make better decisions and live a life with fewer regrets, that I would encourage if you don't have community around you, not community that's, a, that's an echo chamber, right? That just tells you everything you want to hear, but community that gives you a different perspective about life, about your choices, about your habits, that sees the world differently from you and loves you enough to tell you how they see the world too. That if you don't have that, I would encourage you to take a step into that kind of community. We try to create those environments here. It's why this week our groups are rolling out. Because we want to create spaces and places where people like you and me can have a place to connect with people, to get alternate perspectives about life and our choices and our decisions, and to take what happens on Sunday morning and to, flip, to flesh it out deeper in our personal and professional life. That we created these groups. And if you don't have that kind of community right now, I would encourage you to sign up today. They start this week. We have four different ones that will be close to where you are. And that can be a space and a place where you can find community to support you and also a people that have a different perspective. But here's the key. John was active in his search. He sent people to Jesus. This will not happen passively. You have to actively engage with your doubt and disappointment. You have to, to press in and wonder, why am I disappointed? What, what is this doubt really about? If you're in a relationship and you're starting to have doubts and disappointments about why it's not going the way you want it to go, or if you're not sure this marriage is going to last much longer, I would encourage you to process what is that doubt really about? What are the underlying expectations? What are those assumptions you brought in in the first place? That instead of focusing on your experiences, that you dig beneath the surface and look at your expectations and get clarity out of it. This is what Jesus did for John. 
He didn't allow him to focus in on the experience. He wanted him to see and clarify the expectations underneath the surface. And Jesus makes an interesting statement. That's a warning statement that's important. He says in verse 6, he says, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. It's this one sentence that points to a very deep, profound warning for us if we're not careful. That doubt and disappointment can lead to, to deeper clarity. It can lead to a place where you become part of a deeper community of people supporting you and caring you and helping you see the world differently than the way that you saw it when you first stepped in. But if we're not careful, that doubt and disappointment can also lead us to another place a place that he warns John about, that he warns us about, a place where we become cynical, where we allow our situations that we're experiencing to start to become subplots or even the storyline of our life, where we start to write off and to close off our hearts and our minds. We start to, one bad relationship is that all, we, we will write off an entire gender because of a bad experience with one. That's cynicism. And at the heart of cynicism is self-protection. That even this week, read where George Carlin said, if you scratch a cynic, what you find is that oftentimes it's a disappointed idealist. Underneath the surface, their heart was broken, and instead of looking at their expectations, they just decided to reject reality. And we can do that if we're not careful. In small ways, significant ways, we start to do it. I did this in high school. My senior year went on, uh, graduated, went on a senior trip. And in the midst of senior trip, about 1 a.m. Um, with a group of friends, we're at a diner. And I eat this massive meal of, uh, you know, scrambled eggs and omelet. Just, I mean, like all this craziness. And it's about four hours later, I start to think I'm dying. I am hurting in a, in a way I've never hurt before. I survived the 24 to 48 hours that I don't need to give you details about, right? I survived that, and, and I make a sweeping judgment in life. Lo, on this day I proclaim, I shall not eat any eggs forevermore. And for a year and a half, I did not eat anything that had eggs. I wrote off an entire food industry because of one moment in a sketchy diner. And the reality is that you and I do the same thing, not just with eggs, but with relationships, with circumstances. Some of us have even done it with faith. We've had a bad experience. Someone who should not have been representing that faith system steps into your life, and you make a sweeping decision that if that church is like that, or if those people are like that, then I am done with it all. And some of us, if we're not careful, we can fall into that trap of cynicism. And cynicism is at its heart as a self-fulfilling prophecy. So guess what? If you write off that gender, you will find Facebook posts. You will see newspaper stories that, that confirm that gender is worthless. You will find things to support your rejection of reality. Because it's safer that way. And that when you and I start to become cynics, we start to slowly destroy our ability to have hope. And all that's left with is just this constant nope on our tongue. Of like, nope, don't trust them. 
Nope, don't want anything to do with that people. Nope, don't want to do anything with that gender. Nope, they're all just out to get me. And we start making these broad sweeping statements. But here's the the thing I want to leave you with that I think is really helpful. Verses 7 through 11, I'm not going to read them all. I just want to summarize. There's a, a statement that Jesus makes at the end. In verse 11, he says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has never risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Now think about it. This is a guy, this is a guy who, in the midst of this conversation, has been struggling with extreme doubt. He has real internal strife about being in prison and not being sure if Jesus is really who Jesus says he is. And what does Jesus do? He does not demonize his doubt. He does not take a stand because if there had been any moment where it was kind of teed up for Jesus to hit this home run about doubt, this was it. But instead of criticizing doubt, instead of demonizing people who have doubts, Jesus celebrates John's willingness and his greatness. And that even when there is doubt, that he leans in and seeks clarity. He doesn't become cynical. That doubt does not have to destroy you. Doubt is not bad. Doubt is even not wrong. And for some of us, if I can just talk about faith for a second, some of us grew up in households or have heard or seen that doubt is wrong. That if somehow you have doubt about faith, Or if you question it, there's something lacking in you. There's something wrong with you. And Jesus could have said that, but he doesn't. And the reason why is because doubt is transitional. It's not bad. We all experience it. I've had points in my own life journey where I have doubted sincerely and strongly my Christian faith. And I I imagine that some of you have experienced the same thing. Some of you are probably experiencing doubt right now about the Christian faith, and you're not even sure what you believe. And what Jesus gives John that day is he gives him clarity. And I want you to know, as a church, this is a church that's not afraid of doubt. We think that when we have doubt, we should ask, what's the doubt about? We should press in. And that we want to be a church that helps bring clarity around faith. And so here's what I want to do in three minutes. I want to give you the entirety of the Christian faith. Because let's be real, you're probably afraid like me. Okay, this week, right now in my house, in the, in the refrigerator, freezer, is a dead fish in a bag. This week, our fish, Princess Elizabeth Causey, passed away at the tender age of about four months. Right? We, we think, based on the autopsy report, that Princess died, this beta fish, died of what is called droopsy, and that there was nothing that we could do, though we spent $50 to save that fish that cost three. <laughs> Grieve with me. So what we will have this week with our daughter is a celebration of life service. We are going to celebrate this fish's life. And we're going to deal with the difficult topics around life and death. And why, when my daughter prayed for Princess Elizabeth Causey to get better, she didn't. Because that's a question she has. I prayed, and the fish still died. And so, for many of us, when our kids ask questions or are 
workers, co-workers, or family members ask questions about faith, it can be really confusing or overwhelming, right? The reality is, is that at some point, you're probably going to have a celebration of life service in your house for the hamster, for the plant, for the fish, for the dog, or for a loved one, that we live in a broken world, and we have to confront it. So maybe you don't have handles to talk about faith. I want to give you some handles. I want to give you the entire Christian journey because maybe some of you are doubting and you're struggling with Christian faith. You're not even sure what you're struggling with, what you're doubting with. And so what I want to do is walk through, and I'm going to say the word orthodox, and it's essentially the not orthodox as a denomination, but for 2,000 years, based on the teachings of the New Testament, what is the Christian faith? And to do so, in commemoration of the fact that the Red Sox are going into the playoffs, right, woo-woo, I want to use a baseball field to help us. Yeah? So, um, in the Christian faith, we, uh, this is home, and to get into this game, I think doubt is a great first step. We begin to have questions. We begin to seriously reflect and look. And when, when you and I have sincere questions, and we're starting to doubt, and we start to ask the questions about life, not, right, was there a big bang, but what, who caused the big bang? Like, those kind of significant questions. What happens is that throws us into this game. And first base is, in the Christian faith, is a defining moment where someone puts their trust and their faith in Jesus specifically, right? This is this kind of the who of the Christian faith. It's called Christianity because of Jesus Christ. And that the, the, the whole of Christian faith defines this moment. Um, the way that this moment is captured in John 3 is it's described as a rebirth. It's that significant. Um, that's a term, terminology that's maybe distant or difficult for some of us. So if you have an iPhone, let me step into your world. Last week, iPhone released their iOS number 11, right? Their most current operating system for those who have iPhones. And most likely, many of you have probably updated it already. And guess what? You, like me, had this profound moment, right? I went to sleep. I had this device with all the scratches and the bruises of life that my device has, like yours probably does. And this device with certain hardware, I wake up the next morning, and because of this download that has occurred, I have a brand new phone, not on the outside, but on the inside. It looks different. The fonts look different. It has new features it did not have the day before. Why? Because a new software had been downloaded and transformed the existing hardware. And in Christianity, we believe that's what happens, that there is a moment when we put our trust and faith in Jesus, and that moment, it's the hardware stays the same, but the software changes on the inside. And that there is essentially all of this newness that occurs inside of us. And that this is what that first step looks like. And then... The second step in, in what has been called the kind of Orthodox Christian faith is baptism. See, this is private. This is a personal thing. Baptism is meant to be a public thing. And this is significant because our faith is not meant to be lived alone. It's meant to live in community. And so this is why this step matters because this is kind of our opportunity to associate ourselves with a community and to be associated with. Now, for some of us, baptism is really confusing because you aren't really sure what third base is yet, but you already are starting to internally kind of deal like, wait a second, I'm not sure because I ran to second base in my storyline. That in your journey, maybe in your kind of faith journey, you've skipped first base, and when you were a baby or when you were a small child, you went straight to second base. 
And that you're looking at this, and part of you is wanting to struggle and say, well, this can't be right. My mom and dad, they wanted the best for me, and I went straight to second base. And I would just say to you, this doesn't have to conflict with what you experienced growing up. You see, for some of us, what our parents did for us when we were young was not about our faith. It was about their faith. It was not about us making a choice. It was about them making a choice, saying that they wanted to make sure that in their household, they deposited the Christian faith. They deposited the Christian teachings in your life. And what this actually is at second base is not something that stands in contradiction to what your parents did, but it complements what your parents did. That moment when you were small was done in anticipation that this moment would happen and that you would become part of that group at this step. So this is a personal thing. Another way of describing it is this is my wedding band. Taking it off my finger did not make me single. My wife, who's currently kind of working in preschool area, did not just have this wave hit her, and she's like, I'm a single lady. (laughs) Right? I hope not. So she's better looking than I am. She recovers faster. Okay? And, And so... Like, this, this doesn't make me married or unmarried. This is just a physical symbol of a personal decision when I said no to all the other three billion women on planet Earth and said yes to the one. Okay? And that's what baptism represents. And then there's this third step in the Christian faith, and it's the, the longest part, and this is where we grow in our faith. And in the process, at some point, we go home, and for a Christian, home is now heaven. That we, we win, and we walk off the field, and there's more to life than just what happened. Now, for some of you, this may be very clarifying, because you've never, ever been able to put your mind around the Christian faith in that way. And as a church, I say that we, we don't run from doubt. We don't struggle and, and demonize doubt. We say lean into it. And so what we've done is we've created an environment for every single one of these. Why? Because we want to help you and I have places and spaces where we can struggle with the deepest questions in life. So for some of you, you're not even sure if you're on on kind of base one. Here's what I would encourage you. Um, We will start this month an exploring faith group. And that group is there for you to ask the questions and get your mind around what this looks like. This is not, you don't go through this group and automatically become a Christian. We're not like, this isn't some like Amway deal. No offense if you sell Amway. Like we're not conscripting you where all of a sudden you're like part of the club. That's not that. It just gives you a place to struggle and to ask questions because your questions matter. And we want to honor you with your questions. And that's why we've created this group. And for, for baptism on November 19th, if you're here, you will find that there will be people who will be present and we will baptize that day who will come up and, and they've, in their journey, they've crossed this line and they want to make this public. And for some of you, maybe you're sensing some inner struggle, but you, you're open to that. I would encourage you to go ahead and end the app at starting point or swing by physically the starting point space. There's a form that if you fill it out, one of us will be in touch with you really soon and we can start to answer questions and dialogue about this. That this, you can sign up in the app or swing by starting point. And then this, for those who are ready to grow in your faith, we have actually created a group called Grow in Your Faith Group. Um, And what this is about 
is helping you and I begin to practice our faith, not one or maybe even two hours a week, but all 112 hours a week that we have awake. And this is a group that's going to start um, later in this month. I'm really excited about that group. And um, we're going to walk through and journey through some very practical things to help us grow in our faith. The reality is, is that, that you can sign up for that in the app as well, that we want to create environments, that we want to be a place as a church that reflects the heart of Jesus. He did not demonize John's doubt. He pressed into it with him. Because we think that doubt doesn't have to be something that destroys your faith. It doesn't have to be something that destroys the relationship you're currently in. It doesn't have to be something that, that derails you in your professional field. It can be something that if you're willing to engage with your doubt, that what you can find is that it will bring clarity and help to diminish the confusion. And it protects us from cynicism. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for uh, the way that you go before us, the way that you deal with the difficult, the way that you, um, even with John and his struggle, you didn't allow that moment to be something that destroyed John, but that later he would end up losing his life and that he would walk into death with a confidence and a courage because his faith had been deepened because of this moment. And for those who are in this room, I know that God, as I said earlier, there are some that are struggling with some heavy, significant doubt moments. And that you, you still speak to those doubts. And I pray that even in our response time, even in our singing, that we would find your comfort, that we would find your presence for us, God, that you would give us the courage to take steps, to, to try to tell and to trust more than we're comfortable with, to engage with whatever that next step looks like. And I uh, thank you for the privilege and for the opportunity to spend time with you and with each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we're going to close out the same way. Um, the last five minutes that we have together, we're going we're gonna to sing um, and use this space to process through. Because here's what I, I know about all of us, um, just in the faith portion alone, that we all have a next step we can take. And I would encourage you to, for whatever that may be, to take that next step. It may be part of the baseball diamond, maybe signing up for something, or that next step may be in the midst of this song. you just starting to become honest with God about some of your doubts and some of your questions and some of your struggles and to have this safe place to say to him, okay, I, I don't want to become just cynical. I, I want to I get clarity. Help me get clarity. And um, it may be that for some of us, you just need to swing by starting point because you, you, you don't want to click on an app. You want to look face to face with someone and you want, you want to have a conversation. And that's what we created that starting point space for, is for you so that we can help you get started towards a life with better decisions and fewer regrets. And um, as Jason referenced earlier, that uh, we also give you the physical cards when you walked in. If there's a way we can pray for you, if there's a way we can engage with you in your journey, wherever you are, we would love the privilege to do that. We, we think it's an honor you're here today. And so we would love to come alongside with you of you, however you feel comfortable. Um, and then uh, you'll see in our events list that we have a couple of things coming up in October and um, that we're able to do those things because of the generosity of people who call Encounter Church Home and that 
for those who are new here that you'll also see um, this moment is where we practice that generosity where some are giving through an app or some are putting money in a basket that's being passed around and and that's just because we're generous people and we want to make a difference it's why um, while a lot of the conversation has been around um, the government not stepping into Puerto Rico. I want you to go ahead and know that your giving is, is allowing us and part of a relief agency that we work with. We, we've already gone into Puerto Rico. Okay. So this week, while the news has been kind of lamenting about the struggles of Puerto Rico, your generosity had already paved the way for Puerto Rico. I, I just think that's incredible. If you're, you're new here, that's the kind of people you're, you're around. We're people of action, we're people of generosity, and we're making a difference. I was talking to one of the leaders that works with the president of that organization uh, a couple days ago, and I said, hey, I wanna know, are we in Puerto Rico? Like, tell me, are we in Puerto Rico? And he's like, well, this is what we're doing in Houston, and this is what we're doing in Florida, and they're, they're feeding like 150,000 people a day in, in, in Houston right now. And I'm like, that's incredible, but I wanna know, are we there for the people of Puerto Rico? Because their world has just collapsed around them. He's like, we're in Puerto Rico too. And I was like, all right, thank you. Because I wanna be able to tell our people who are generous that this is what we're doing around the world. And so thank you for those who practiced your generosity because it's allowing us to do far more collectively than we could ever do individually. So I want to invite you to stand. The band's going to lead us in the song and then somebody will come up to dismiss. Thank you for being in Encounter Church today and for being willing to be able to be courageous.